Hello and welcome to episode 69 of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host Mark, and coming up on today's episode, I'm joined by the special makeup creator, Craig Reardon. This guy has won four Emmy Awards, he's a huge deal, and he's responsible for some of the best creations out there in some of my favourite films, such as Poltergeist, we have American Werewolf in London, growing up one of my most watched TV shows with my dad was The X-Files, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and one of the best 80s classics of all time, The Goonies. So I'm absolutely thrilled that he's going to be here joining me today on today's episode. But before we get into that, you know the score by now. I'd like to touch base and talk about my last episode which was out just under two weeks ago. I was joined by Ian McFarlane, who's responsible for The Godfathers of Hardcore, which at this moment in time is my favourite documentary of the year. He was a great interview, I loved having him on, and again, the response was phenomenal. He's read and replied to all of the tweets and Facebook comments I've seen on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. I've had a number of emails about people saying how much they enjoyed how deep we got into and talked about mental health and everything else that went with it. And it was one of my favourite interviews, and I think it's probably had the best response yet out of all my released episodes. So thank you for everyone that took the time to listen to that. But as I said, I'm joined by Craig Reardon today, and this is a big one for me. I'm absolutely thrilled and I couldn't wait to have this interview happen and I'll be honest I've showed this to two of my very close friends. Those people I trust more than anyone and their judgement is huge and if they told me this wasn't a great interview I wouldn't put it out. That's how much I value their opinion. But both of them last week have emailed and texted telling me it's their favourite interview that I've done to date. So it, I can't wait for you guys to hear it. I think Craig's an absolute legend. Some of the stories he shares and just how how much passion he shows in his interview is just it's it's so so good and I don't get me wrong I love going out there and getting these big stars like Mads Mikkelsen and Anthony Hopkins and Kevin Smith but these people that you might not know or you don't actually know their name but you know what they've done they're the sort of interviews I like because they tell different stories you might not know and for me the the, the stories he shares with me today are just absolute gold so I kind of juiced you up and I want to get straight to it now so here's my interview with me and the absolute genius Craig Reardon. So Craig, what I want to do is say thank you for joining me today on the Mark and Me podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. What I want to do now is basically take it right back to the beginning. So when you were growing up, I want to know what were those films that you were watching that made you fall in love with cinema? Well, uh, with cinema, it was, generally speaking, uh, movies that at that time, I would say, were probably uh, only about 20 years old. But if you're reckoning on how old I am, uh, these were movies I was seeing on television in glorious black and white before color TV was affordable in the 50s. And so uh, just about anything I saw from that era, and I think that from today's perspective, people will understand what I'm saying, had a, a certain element, a gloss of unreality, sort of. You know, it's just the fashion in which Hollywood films were made, and they were basically all Hollywood movies, just beginning to be televised in that decade. And uh, I was born in 1953, just to get a vector on all this jazz. And in the mix, of course, eventually, were the early uh, universal horror movies, so-called. Today, they uh, are little more frightening than a mild uh, fairy story you'd tell a kid before they went to bed. (laughs) But uh, back then, I have to tell you that even uh, in the much more sophisticated late 1950s, a little boy or girl could watch, you know, an old werewolf or a Frankenstein picture and get pretty creeped out. And I did. 
So can you remember those first real big horrors that scared you and genuinely kept you from sleeping at night? I absolutely can. Uh, I wouldn't say that maybe they went quite that far, but they certainly made me, uh, you know, kind of want to pull the covers up tight. And <laughs> yeah. most of them were similar in one respect. Uh, the ones that uh, leaped to mind that really kind of freaked me out were the Spencer Tracy version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and also uh, Universal's Werewolf of London. You know, a kid looks into the world for things that he can depend upon, so he can kind of construct his idea of reality. And that knocks one of the pins out of reality. You know, I thought you were this guy, now you're that. You know, it was, it's an interesting portion of the psychology of, of those sort of horror films, the transformative thing. I mean, an American werewolf in London is one of my favorite all-time horrors, so to hear you say that just blows my mind. Oh, absolutely. And I think that no matter what age uh, you are, up to a point uh, where you have that open, you haven't quite coalesced as a human being, you see a werewolf and it is extremely unsettling or, or, or a transformation. Uh, it, it, you know, some I think some uh, quasi intellectuals have kicked around Freudian ideas about puberty and all that jazz. That's all fine and it may even be valid. But I think you're, it bypasses just the simple on the face of it disturbing quality of seeing a radical change taking place where you know you thought you had a mild uh, decent uh, you know reliable kind of person that you were identifying with and now look so then obviously when you're growing up we've just talked then about some of the the classic universal horrors that you watched but what were you studying at kind of college and at university what was the the way that you wanted your career to go I didn't really have a bead on a career. I just was still, by the time I got to college age, uh, besotted with movies. But to tell you the truth, Mark, even at that late part of my life, I hadn't made any decisions. Uh, And I'm not boasting about it. I wouldn't recommend it either. I simply couldn't make my mind up. I did not know exactly what to do. The only through line from the time I was a boy to, you know, a young man was this sense that I wanted to be an artist of some sort. And that's about it. I I toyed with the idea of being an illustrator. I know that. The earliest thing I did was draw. Not so much paint at first, but just draw, you know, pencil, paper. And uh, so that was always the the way I was kind of headed. But the movies were such a powerful influence uh, beyond just being entertainment as everyone loves them. And I, well, I'm just the same as everyone. I really mean it. I, that's how I felt about it. But if the you know enthusiasm and the focus is a, a trifle more intense, you're a little more analytical about it, you're a little more curious, then you're bound to get more and more drawn into it. And that's kind of what happened to me bit by bit. By the time I was looking at college, though, I had already ex- not only experimented with makeup, but I had even had the good fortune to get in touch with uh, a couple of professionals and meet them. And one of them became my friend for life, for his the rest of his entire life, Dick Smith. So I think that it was beginning to become kind of the, uh, you know, the paradigm was just about there, where I was just about one and a half feet in makeup. And it was a hobby as well. But I wasn't someone that was bursting with confidence. Uh, I shortly, through Dick, met rick baker when he was 18 years old and i would say that rick already knew what he wanted to do and he was already working toward it a hundred percent that wasn't the case with me i was a little more conflicted i was still kind of playing around in my mind maybe i would like to go into music and 
maybe maybe not you know uh, abandon the idea of being an illustrator you you can yeah. see what i'm trying yeah. to say i was not absolutely locked in yet but it happened soon enough so at what age were you when you thought oh okay so i'm really enjoying this makeup work i want to be an artist of some sort i'm actually going to make this a career now and hopefully sustain a good healthy living from it well i think i was probably uh maybe about 23 but, but you know, I'm having to ballpark this. Yeah. I would say between maybe 23, 25. And I was still living with my parents. And uh, I hadn't gone to college. Uh, well, university. I had gone to what they call in America community college, which is sort of a preparatory stage that is an option. And it makes sense because for much less money, you can go there for two years and get your so-called college requirements done. Uh, and then you can transfer those credits to university. So that was, roughly speaking, I guess, my plan, but it didn't happen. Instead, I kind of just uh, larked around for six years in a two-year two community college situation with the occasional odd job, uh, glam glamorous stuff like pumping gas and making hamburgers. And uh, by the time I was in my mid-20s, you know, both my parents, who were awfully sweet to me, but it was kind of like, well, uh, what are you really going to do with your life? And a little pressure began to be, you know, uh, in a salutary way applied. And my mother it was who said one day to me, look at honey, why don't you write a letter to the studios and tell them what you can do and maybe they'll hire you. And of course I was the know-it-all young man. And I thought, oh, mom, that's not how it works. Mom. You got to be <laughs> yeah. somebody's nephew <laughs> or otherwise forget about it. Or you have to put a ladder over the wall or there's no way, Jose, I'm, that's going to work. Forget it. And then I went into my uh, bedroom, uh, my small bedroom in, in the apartment we were all living in at that time, and I thought, what right do I, I have to tell her at this point that it won't work and that I won't even try it? And so a big groan, a big you know, input, intake of air and an exhale, I sat down at the typewriter. I thought, what in the hell am I going to say about myself? So I tried to put together a persuasive uh, letter stressing past the point of reality some of my skill set and I finished it up and I made one out to Warner Brothers I remember head of makeup of Warner Brothers I, had, I hadn't even any idea who that was and ditto for Universal Pictures Universal Studio and, by, and it was not that difficult because I thought these don't have a snowball's chance in hell of, of ever being read let alone you know anything happening I put a stamp on both of them. I found the addresses for these two entities in the phone book, true story, and I mailed them. And then I was able to tell my mom, well, mom, I did it. We'll see what happens. And, of course, I didn't want to keep poking her with the, you'll see, nothing will happen. I just kept my mouth shut for once. And do you know what happened, Mark? I don't think a, a week went by, and I happened to be uh, in that same bedroom, and uh, my mom comes to the door and says, Craig, come to the phone. There's somebody on the phone for you. I said, well, who is it? She says, they're with Universal. I said, what? <laughs> I shot up, got, went into the uh, you know, living, area, living room where the, where the phone was, and put it to my head and said, hello, this is Craig. And it turned out to be the lady who was the secretary for the uh, guy who was the head of makeup at Universal. And she said that uh, he would like to speak to you. He'd like to uh, see if a uh, meeting could be set up about something that we're going to be doing. And I said, <laughs> you know, absolutely. What can I do to help you? You know, one of those. And uh, 
So the meeting was set up. I hung up the phone. I looked at my mom. I said, I don't believe it. And she, of course, was grinning, you know, from ear to ear. Well, anyway, uh, that was the uh, one of my earliest jobs. And uh, it, it was not my, not my only. I, I had had a couple of uh, bones tossed to me by a couple of good buddies who had gone into uh, makeup. But nothing had come of those because they were free-floating, I would say. You know, you go in and there's no there's no continuing anything. But this was something else again. And this turned into a job that uh, wound up lasting about three, four months, as I recall, in late 1977 at Universal Studios. Uh, it would have gone on from there, but I, did, I was not in the union, and that's a whole other story. That's a difficult process, and uh, they were, frankly... Not they, a wonderful guy named Nick Marcelino, who's gone now. He was the head of makeup, and he kind of stuck me in there under the radar and uh, gave me the work in the what they always call the lab, short for laboratory. Yeah. Why not workshop? I don't know, but that's it's really more like an art studio setup. But I was up in the lab there in the building. This was, by the way, the second makeup department on the lot, the original one where uh, Jack Pierce and Bud Westmore had held forth had been shut down in order to build this more showy one, which would be right on the route of their uh, cute little trams that went through every, you know, half hour. So that the originally the idea was so the tram would stop there and the uh, tourists would pile out and go and have a look at it. And the reason I know that was I was in, I went on that tour with my parents the first year it was in, in business, which was late 1965 or 66. And we did get out of the tram and go into the makeup department. And so here I was 11 years later showing up to work there. Uh, kind of amazing. I was at about 20, I was 24 years old. So you were, were you classed as a lab technician at this point? Yeah. Uh, Nick hired me because they were preparing a show which uh, a guy who uh, was in the front part of the studio who was a producer for television, he was sort of infamous for doing ripoffs of movies. There was a successful film called... Uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and by that September, when new TV shows came on, he'd cooked up one called Alias Smith and Jones, which was the same thing. And not only that, he got a young actor who resembled Paul Newman for one of the parts. And then this year was the year, if you recall, 1977, that Star Wars came out and dominated the box office and the media that entire year, so that by the by the fall, lo and behold, this same genius has a new show. And it's and the name of it is Star World. <laughs> <laughs> and he had the temerity in a meeting I attended in his office, his very posh office, saying, I'm so happy for the success of Star Wars because finally it enables me to get this project of mine, which I've had on the on the back burner for several years, and get it produced. Right. So, Star World was uh, eventually retitled Battlestar Galactica. Nice. And I was hired to just basically spitball some creatures for it. And I uh, was happy to do that. And I did, I think, about, oh, I don't know, maybe nine drawings, pencil drawings. And then some of them were uh, built as prototypes. They were later used, almost thrown away as background fodder and uh, pretty clumsily, pretty indifferently. I was disappointed in the whole experience as far as the follow-through. But as far as the opportunity to be in the, in the studio to basically practice my nascent, really, craft and kind of get my sea legs in that area and also to go on sets because Nick 
couldn't use me in the lab all the time. And he would send me to various uh, sound stages during the week at, at, at a moment's notice to be a third makeup artist on a show. And that was great experience, too. I mean, for example, I was sent on to a show that was called The Hardy Boys with a couple of guys named Parker Stevenson and Sean Cassidy. And uh, the, we the week I was sent over to that show, they had a guest star who was a young lady, I think she was about 21 years old, named Melanie Griffith. And I made up Melanie for, for that episode. And so, you know, I mean, if you're going to have a practical life in makeup, it's not a bad idea to be versatile, to be able to do, I won't say it all, but I mean, I've done just about everything. And so, although I wanted to specialize in the creatures and the, the constructed items, it was a great help to me over the arc of my career to have, you know, have the whole thing kind of in my purview. And this was a great help to me in getting that done. We're talking now about this kind of late 70s, early 80s. Now, you mentioned your mother being very excited when Universal were at the door and we had this meeting and everything. But did you have quite supportive parents? Because, you know, some people will want their, you know, their children to go off to university and become a doctor or become a, a pilot. But when you turn around and said, I want to do a makeup artist and work in special effects and stuff, were, were they very supportive? Did they understand or did they try and talk you around or were they very, very behind you the whole journey? You know, I think that's uh, a great question, and uh, I, it's easy to say for one of them, my mother, who was always in my, you know, always always supportive. <clears throat> I think my dad was a little more uh, uh, mystified. I mean, let me give you some idea. Before I was born, he uh, had a football already for me, you know. Yeah. And sh shortly into my babyhood, I think I was about two or three years old, he gave me a little pair of boxing gloves. So he was from that whole kind of all-American uh, moron, you know, <laughs> excuse me, uh, you know, he's going to be, a, 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 you know, a boy's boy, man's man, so might as well get him started. And I didn't go that way at all, ever. And uh, But Dad loved me, you know, my whole life. I think I threw him a few uh, curves. But as far as makeup is concerned, I remember uh, well past the point it was a hobby, I don't remember the context anymore. I just remember that it sounded like out of left field. He said in my presence and my mother's, you know, I think this makeup thing is a good thing for Craig, period. That's all he said. But that's all he had to say. It, it took a lot of psychological pressure off me. It, it was a kind of a benediction, you know, like, don't worry, dad's not going to be on your case. Now, later on, of course, he was he was more uh, uh, worried about when the hell I was going to get serious and do anything for a living. But this sort, this job went a long distance in kind of uh, rescuing me from that. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you a funny but brief uh, uh, subset to this, or a little footnote. When I brought home my first check from Universal, uh, it was laying there, the check stub, uh, where my dad saw it, or my mother picked it up and quoted what I had made. It was one or the other. That was how. That was what it was. She says, "Listen, Rich. His name was Richard. Listen to this. Craig made blah 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 last week, and Dad, according to her, I wasn't there. She said his face fell, and all he could say was, well, that's BS.' And she says, "No, it is. Well, here it is. Read it for yourself.' And he took it from her and looked at it. And you know why he was so shocked and disbelieving? I was making more than he was making at that time. Wow. After all, he'd been with a with a phone company for over thirty years. So. 
I think, you know, he was probably like a lot of, uh, unfortunately, some fathers somewhat competitive. So he was a little bit deflated. But I think also that on the other side of that, he did want me to be safe, you know, to have a living. And I must it must have encouraged him, even if it was at his own expense. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that's that's an interesting sidelight of that time. So, uh, yes, they were supportive. And I think they were both proud that I, you know, had shown certain promise and certain well, how should well, how should I put it aptitude with drawing with with the early experiments with makeup. And, you know, uh, it I think it's true of all uh, young people. There's a certain point where you kind of go into a liftoff mode. You kind of slop around with it for a few years. But then it's a strange thing. It's almost as if it missed. How could I say it? It just like it kind of goes right off the launch pad. And then you there's a sort of a quantum. Evidently, this is the wrong phrase to use, according to scientists. But it's a big leap, like a quantum leap forward. Yeah. And I think I experienced something like that. I went from doing, eh, you know, nice try. Yeah, that's good. You're coming along to where I suddenly was doing actually professional level work, at least if you were looking at that particular profession. And it's worth emphasizing that even as late as the late 70s, there were not uh, these huge endless legions of young men and now young women today who were dying to get into makeup and particularly what they all call special effects makeup. That that didn't even exist as a designation. It just wasn't there. There were no schools for it, none. There were textbooks, you know, a yeah. couple of people had written textbooks, but those textbooks on makeup, by the way, were usually written by and intended for uh, acting students, stage people, theater people. And accordingly, they reflected uh, an emphasis on the techniques for stage, which used to be a little different, a little more emphatic than would be appropriate for other media. There was one exception of a book written by one of Dick Smith's colleagues named, uh, uh, I'm, I'm going to, oh, Vincent Ke uh, Kehoe. Okay. And I knew Vince, I, I almost forgot his name. And, and that was a rare one. That came out in 1958, and that was actually called the... Uh, technique of film and television makeup so you better believe that a young rick baker and me and some others got a hold of that book but a lot of it was over my head i would read it and think i don't understand what they're talking about including such simple things as the word prosthetic i thought say what and then they and then he referred to like rubber noses as appliances and i thought well a toaster is an appliance what is he talking about so it was kind of <laughs> kind of funny uh but you know you live and learn when I look at some of the films that you've took part in, um, I I was I, I I'm 37 years old, but um, my my main love in film is the 80s. I absolutely am obsessed with practical effects and stuff like John Carpenter, The Thing, and you know all these classics for, are a classic for a reason. American Werewolf in London, um, Poltergeist. These films for me are absolute masterpieces and the reason is that they don't look as aged because of the work and detail it's not cgi you were lucky enough to work on poltergeist and i wanted to know what it was like to kind of work with steven spielberg um in the 80s and be involved in films like the goonies and weird science and some of these absolute classics uh, yeah, well, it was uh, initially when I got Poltergeist, don't let, you know, I mean, don't let anybody kid you. I, maybe a lot of them will. But I mean, when any of us in our particular, uh, my particular wave got their early, you know, best uh, early 
uh, 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 jobs. I think they were all over the moon, you know, just elated. I know I was. I, this was not a fluke, but virtually a fluke that I got poltergeist. And I'll tell you why I got it. I mean, I'm willing to tell you. It, it basically was by the process of elimination because what had happened was, uh, and, I, and I'm not an expert on this on, on these side topics, but uh, Mr. Spielberg had had a difference of opinion with uh, some of the leading lights in the field back at that time, including one of the uh, newer ones, uh, Rick Baker, and also Stan Winston and also uh, Tom Berman, to name names. And uh, so the timing couldn't have been better for uh, an X-factor person to step into that breach. Now, it's not as though I knew anything about it, but here was the uh, here's where the hand of fate came in. I had worked with the director uh, three times uh, in in slightly increasing increments of importance to the film, so that by the the third time, it was uh, well the third time was Poltergeist. So I beg your pardon. The second time, however, had been the Funhouse, ironically with Rick because it was Rick's job. Yeah. And uh, Rick, however, had American Werewolf looming at that point. So he approached the funhouse as something he could just fit in. But he kind of sent me off to Florida where it was done in Miami. From the very beginning, he felt that that would be the way there where he could get it set up and do the sort of design work, which he kind of split with me. But he did the most important thing, which is visualize the ghastly face of this thing, which incidentally was adapted from a real guy. Many people don't know that. Wow. And uh yeah, he was a poor unfortunate who was uh, in a book of uh, extreme cases of people uh, born with, to say the least, uh, extreme anomalies. All Rick did, really, and he'd tell you himself, was to add some fangs, and then he had a rather interesting additional inspiration, which was to make him an albino. But otherwise, that face existed. But uh, so I went back, did that, had had a good time doing it, and uh, came back and joined American Werewolf and so forth. And uh, that, unfortunately, we had a difference of opinion by the end of that, Rick and I. But uh, I survived it. But at the time, it was quite devastating. But rolling into the new year, which was early '81, uh, I got a little work at Tom Berman's studio, and that led to a job in New Zealand. Curiously enough, way before. Uh, Mr. Jackson was old enough to be a director. And uh, then I came back home wondering, now what? You know, I, you do. In this business, I don't care. You know, you, you, you're you lucky if you get in a mode where they're just coming to you. And I thought, what in hell? I don't know who, you know, who or what. And uh, I had a message on my phone, and I recognized the voice. It was Toby Hooper. And he said, you know, hi, Craig, why don't you? And, of course, he had a Texas accent, very thick. And he said, uh why don't you come over to MGM? I'd like to talk to you about a movie I'm doing with Steven Spielberg. Unbelievable. I still can't believe it. So, of course, uh, you know, I said, I think I will come over to MGM. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not busy. Anyway, that's how I got it. That's how I got to film. And uh, Toby basically met with me, and we went over to the uh, famous commissary there and talked about it, and I was very pumped up about it. So we said, well, good. He said, let's go introduce you to Steven. And I walked over with him to the offices, and Spielberg came in and uh, was very nice. And uh, he, uh, this was the most amazing. He was a producer, obviously, the executive producer. But I believe he took the attitude, I have to infer it, that if this is who Toby says he wants, and he's basically vouching for him, uh, I guess it's good enough for me. 
It was that simple. I, I couldn't believe it. I, I'll say that over and over again. But that was enough at that time, apparently, because I actually left the studio having been given the job. And uh, that was, I you know, I had the furthest thing from my assumption when I arrived there was to leave with the job. So I was moonwalking back to my car. You better believe it. But uh, then the work begins. And I to answer your question, uh, they were both great. Uh, Stephen was involved, and he appreciated, you know, being kept in the loop. A very, very hands-on producer, which is, I think, where all this mythology of him directing the movie starts from. Because, you know, he he was on the set like David O. Selznick. Now, of course, there are stories of o. Selznick being a pain in the ass. And uh, maybe, uh, you know, some directors may have felt that way about Stephen. But, I mean, he couldn't argue with his track record or his intelligence, and nor his enthusiasm. So I don't like to get sucked into that one in advance. But he was great. I mean, I, I was in on the original uh, production meeting, which he and Toby presided over. And, you know, where, where various things were kicked around. That was, by the way, where I uh, licked one of my special effects problems that I was tasked with, which had to do with the cancerous steak, which was in the script. And that went through further uh, changes as far as what it appeared to be. But I had first to struggle with the idea of how the hell do you make this thing move across a uh, kitchen sink? And then I had it. <clears throat> I just got a bing, came on in my, my mind, and the special effects people later stole it, by the way, and I'll tell you how. I said to the production designer, whose name was uh, Jim Spencer, I said, hey, Jim, is there any reason why you wouldn't be willing to make the grout on the sink, whatever tile, whatever the tile colors are going to be, would you be willing to make the grout dark brown? He said, well, yeah, why? And I said, because I'm going to ask you to leave out a course of grout, and that's where I'm going to move my stake. It's going to be like a track. It's going to be hiding in plain sight. And I told them this before we even shot one frame of film in the movie. So I had solved that problem beforehand in my head. And by the way, Mark, that's where problems get solved, in your head. Sometimes in a dream, sometimes on a piece of paper or a napkin while you're having lunch, sometimes just because. But they never happen just by beating your head against the wall. Uh, it's just a lucky insight. And that was one of them I had. And that's what happened down the line. It was a little sloppier than that because they had to remove the grout. They hadn't actually left one out, and they hadn't left a good, clean track. They had to route it out, and it was a mess, actually. It almost undid the whole thing because of a very rough, jaggedy aperture. But I did manage to move the stake, and the next time you ever see Poltergeist and you see that snail-like procedure of that stake, that's what he's doing. And what I mean by when I said they stole it, there's an earlier scene with a little girl goes scooting along the kitchen floor, and guess how they did that? They took out the grout <laughs> and moved her along the... Well, I won't say the, the F word, but I would normally. Uh, they moved her along the grout line, just exactly like I said. Because why? Because they were at the same meeting. And wow. uh, that's how that works. But the funny thing is, is it kind of works for both of them. Um, I, I like to think it works better for the steak because of the low light and because I thought of it. <laughs> I'm, you know but, that after this interview now I'm going to go and watch Poltergeist and actually f pause it and have a look so I can see this. I don't think you'll see it in the stake, but you might notice it under the little girl because yeah. it's, uh, it's, uh, it's the only way it really could have been done and it's sort of in your face. But the, the great thing about a good idea when you have the good luck to get one is that it can be in somebody's face. It's like card tricks. They're doing it right in front of you, but you cannot see it yeah. because they've 
misdirected something. They've done something to take your attention off it. They'd have a marvelous a video I saw online where a bunch of people are doing a kind of stylized dance. And during it, oh, I know what it was. I've got it. And you'll love this. I think you can see it on YouTube. They're a bunch of kids, and they're passing a basketball, like crossing in the middle. And so you're supposed to see how many times do the, does the white team pass to the other team, to the white team, or the black team. But you're supposed to look at the white team. So you concentrate on that. By the end of it, the guy says, did you notice the gorilla walk through? And you go, <laughs> what? <laughs> and you run it back, and there's a guy in a gorilla suit that walks behind these kids, slowly turns, flexes his arms, turns and walks out of the picture the whole thing but you don't see it why because you're concentrating so hard to accurately count the number of passes of the basketball with the white or black team and the fact that he's that the suit is black you know but it's but it's very obvious when you look at him so that says a lot about not everything but it says certain things about the art of you know the old school floor effects there was an awful lot of just, uh, you know, take a deep breath and go for it. I think the thing that makes some people today rebel against uh, digital is that there's a certain implicit smugness about them because they can do anything. Yeah. They can have a foot wall of water hit New York. Oh, boring. You know, they can have any kind of monster clash with any other kind of monster. Uh, you know, I mean, the, it threw it into relief when Spielberg ill-advisedly decided to tamper with E.T., and he wound up with a kind of a hybrid where part of it was the original puppet, but but the face was re replaced with CGI, which overacted terribly. And uh, it just it wasn't fish nor f either fish or fowl. And uh, a lot of the fans, of course, preferred the original simply because it was the movie that he made in the first place. And uh, I agree with that. And I agree that some of the CGI simply you simply have to get used to it because we're it's the, the the clock of history is not going to go backwards and this is the way things are now uh, i do sometimes bridle though when i get irrelevant criticism or, or my colleagues for the work that was done in those days because you can tell them until you're blue in the face look we didn't have we didn't have time a hell of a lot of money and we did not have the uh, get out of jail card for everything of cgi so i'm sorry if you didn't like our puppets but there you go <laughs> 1985 one of my top 10 films of all time the goonies i was lucky enough to have Corey feldman on the podcast and I'm, I'm a massive massive fan of everything about the film now we all know that the the character of sloth is iconic it's on t-shirts it's on you can buy the figures you can buy everything now you came up with the makeup for this and i i really want to know about how this idea came about and what inspired you because it's Something now that's still, after like 30 years, people are quoting him, people love him still, and it's, it is, it's one of those, easily one of the top 10 characters in cinema, isn't it? I, if you say so. I mean, I, uh, I, I'm not being, uh, uh, disingenuous, uh, or ingenuous, I, I guess is the correct word. I, I really, uh, I'm kind of astounded by it all. But I'll be very frank and tell you exactly how it came about, and actually the, uh, the, the whole arc of the thing, because it didn't end well for me, unfortunately, but uh, let me just explain it. Yeah. I got that job uh, shortly after getting an interview, which I was very excited about, with uh, the two Bobs, I call them, which are, which were Robert uh, Gale and Robert Zemeckis, with uh, Gale being a writer with Zemeckis and Zemeckis the directing uh, arm, and they were going to do Back to the Future. 
and they wanted to uh, interview me for it. Uh, but after the interview, which I enjoyed, because uh, I liked the, both of them, uh, Zemeckis surprised me by saying, you know, this may all be in vain because I think that uh, Spielberg wants you for the Goonies. And I didn't know what he was talking about. I, uh, I, on either side of it, I hadn't been contacted by Stephen's office, and I also didn't know what the Goonies was. But he said, well, he said, I, I think uh, you'll find out. And sure enough, I think a day or two later, I did. I got a phone call to go in, saw Stephen again, and he told me about the movie. And, uh, you know, uh, he wanted me to do it. And I was uh, thrilled to, you know, be working with him and for him again. So that it, when it got down to the discussion of uh, the character, he, once again, Steven Spielberg has input. Whether people like it or not, either in believing it or whether they like the uh, impact of it, I have to say that Sloth, the, the ideas that are in Sloth that help to endear him to children even today, many of them were his ideas. And this is what he basically told me. He said, I see Sloth as kind of a, a, a cross between Charles Lawton as Quasimodo and Baby Huey. Now, I don't know whether, Mark, either in your generation or whether in England or whether at all anybody remembers or knows what the hell is Baby Huey, but I'll, I'll tell you right now. Baby Huey was a comic book character, uh, a minor one, not one of the stars of American pop culture, but he was a big, huge duck in diapers with a baby bonnet on. <laughs> and, and yeah, how's that for a concept? Yeah. And he, had, and he had misadventures where he basically, you know, bungled everything up because he was just a big, dumb baby, quote unquote. So that's about all you need to know about Baby Huey. But of course, how in hell does a Baby Huey, the giant duck, look like sloth? Mm. Well, I didn't take that at all. I, I, I caught what he was getting at. I thought, I get this. He wants something initially grotesque something initially you know scary for a kid but then he wants to buffer it to neutralize it with something innocent sweet and well-meaning too big for his own good you know i got it it was a, it was basically a psychological steer and uh, i i felt that i understood it so i went back home with with that input and i did a slew of sketches which were rendered in a more or less realistic fashion you know, with the chiaroscuro and some shadow and some basic kind of, you know, dramatic pizzazz, came back and showed them to him. And uh, to my dismay, but it wasn't out and out, he he was interested, but he went through the whole pile pretty quickly. And I thought, Ugh. and he said, uh, he says, I don't, I don't think he was having difficulty, you know, uh, saying I don't like him. But it wasn't that he didn't like them. He just felt that we're not there yet. And I thought, oh, boy, you know, because I'd put a lot of work into these, and I thought that at least one of them would, would have him going, ah, great. But I didn't get ah, great. So I went back home, and I was sitting stewing over it, and then I had another one of my little light bulbs go over my head, which, again, was paid off. And sometimes, I have to say, again, I'm, it's a repeat, repeat thing with me, but if you feel it, it usually works out that way. And what I thought, looking at this stack of sketches, was too real it just came into my head like that and i thought cartoon cartoon that's it and i put them all aside i got out my sketchbook clean sheet of paper 
and I knocked out two or three drawings of sloth that were like line drawings, like like cartoons, literally like cartoons. But with him with his chin in his hands, uh, another one with him uh, holding on or, or reaching for a uh, Hershey bar, which is something with the little boy tempts him with. Simple cartoon images, very simple. But what did they have with them? They had a couple of things that Stephen wanted to have. He wanted a strange little tuft of hair at the top. I gave him that. He uh, he had some odd requests too that we that may have survived in the final makeup where one ear was bigger than the other. So I thought, well, that's kind of useless, but we'll do that too. But the face is basically my conception, but what does it have? It has that sort of slightly drooped eyeball like Charles Lawton's Hunchback, hmm? right? Yeah, I'm picturing so it now. Yeah. For that, and he got it. And also, he had asked me, I'd like it to have one big tooth. Well, he got one big tooth. So you can more or less see that conceptually, more and more, the more I tell you, there was a lot of Stephen in the authorship of this thing. And all I did was to basically put it together in something. Oh, and I didn't finish my thing. I went back to him, showed him the cartoon sketches, and it was just like Eureka. He said, yeah, 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 to all of them. It's what he wanted to see. They weren't overdone. They didn't have any of the shadow stuff. You know, I dispensed with all that kind of crap and just stuck right to the character. And it was a success, and I was able to walk out of there and go forward. And also, at the beginning, Stephen had wanted a guy who was popular in the culture at that time. He had made a name for himself as a, uh, as a bodybuilder and also as a health uh, uh, coach. And his name was Jake Steinfeld. And he was built like, you know, a bull. I mean, huge muscles, huge chest. And a very nice guy. I was introduced to him. And I did a trial makeup on Jake because that's who Stephen wanted to play the part. Yes, in spite of everybody loves what the guy who did get it, I thought Jake would be a great choice. But Stephen showed the director once again, once again. He showed the director the courtesy of letting him make the pick. And Dick Donner, Richard Donner, wanted John Matusak. And so Stephen caved on Jake, and uh, it became John. John came over to my shop, and... You would not believe how big this guy was, even after seeing Goonies a thousand times. Uh, he, his shoulders were about as wide as my desk. He had a huge head. It was, it was stunning. I never, you know, made up or dealt with a guy that big before. And I got a head cast of him. And uh, the first order of business, of course, was to do something with that face. Now, John, as anyone can find out to this day, although he's, he's, gone now but they can find his real image online he had a very high bridge to his nose he had a kind of ferocious face when he wanted me and he had a tough guy side to him almost a little a little borderline nutty but he he also had the ability to be very affectionate and he loved those kids and so I don't want to speak ill of him I mean the 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 sloth that everybody fell in love with is very much you know, powered by John Matusak. But, I'll keep saying it, you had to take out John Matusak. His, his features were very strong and very male and very macho. And, in other words, if anybody's been listening to me all along here, the antithesis of what Stephen wanted Sloth to look like from the neck up. The body was fine, but the face would scare the hell out of kids. 
So that was my contribution, pulling together the various bits of input that Stephen gave me and giving Sloth an innocence and a kind of a sweetness that even from the first time you see him, you're not terrified, you're just intrigued, even if you're a little boy. Although it does help that when he's first when he first turns and roars at uh, Chunky, you know, the, the kid, Chunk, you know, that's played for scary. And, you know, Chunk goes, <laughs> you know, until he gets over it and realizes that this guy's just like a big dog. You know, he's not going to hurt him. Now, what happened, however, and I'll, I'll, I'll condense this, I simultaneously got Weird Science, probably not more than a week or two after I got uh, The Goonies. And wisely or unwisely, I tried to do them both. And I was doing okay, but I overcomplicated Sloth. There were several things I tried to do on that, and I'll, I almost blush to say it even though I'm not on camera. I One of the things I thought of, and by the way, today I could do it, but at that time in 1984, I couldn't quite lick it, and it, I wasted a lot of time with it. I realized it was going to be a suffocating makeup job for this guy, and I thought, I'm going to invent something that in essence is a mask, but it will behave like a makeup, and he can take the entire thing off for an hour at lunch, get back into it in no more than about 10, 15 minutes, and go back to work. And that had never been done before. And like my wife uh, later said, and it shouldn't have been done on that. <laughs> She's right, because if I just done it conventionally from the very beginning, I would, I would be, have been able to do the whole thing and everything would have been fine. But I overreached, you know, hubris. And uh, I, I got caught up barely, but the makeup never quite got a, how could I say this? It never got a trial run to where the minor bugs could be get, gotten out. So that in act, some of the actual shooting, I got caught. And in some, in some views, he looked fine. But when he turned to look around at a very hard angle at the boy, there were creases and things that looked like, what's the matter with him? You know, they didn't look uh, like allowable things, like around the neck or someplace where you could rationalize them. They were wrong. They went in the wrong direction. And they were basically, not to get too technical, Mark, but they were the the, the result of the fact that he had a kind of a thin, hard uh, underskull or a shell, a cap over his head under the makeup, which was sponge rubber. And the cap had a maddening uh, quality of getting loose under there even though it was taped to him with perspiration and all that and that was fatal because the shifting hard object under there created the cre the creases in the face when he looked in extreme angles looking down extremely or to behind him was really the killer and i never quite recovered from that and they shot a while longer with it, but they got uh, exasperated and very angry with me for holding up production because a couple of uh, scenes had to be delayed. And that was, that's, you know, that's like death in the movies. So I was let go. And the, one of the producers, a guy named Harvey Bernhardt, who had done the Omen with Dick Donner, yeah. he, won he never wanted me anyway. It was because of Steven Spielberg. So he was sort of, uh, you know, maliciously overjoyed. And he uh, went out and got the guy he wanted, who was Tom Berman. And Berman, I will say this, to his credit, he was handed a hot potato with this because they were shooting the damn movie. But if you look at the end of the movie, I, I'll tell you this and all fans of the Goonies, look at the very end where you see Sloth out on the beach. He's kind of monstrous looking. That's because that is Tom Berman's first whack at it. But it was, a, it, it was not good. And uh, Stephen had to use it, but he didn't like it. And he actually, I understand, told him, look, I want it to look like Reardon's. I just don't want the bugs. 
So Tom, I understand at least, had to redo it again. And then they shot the scenes that actually appear in the movie earlier. There are still some scenes, though, with my makeup in there, and I'll let anybody interested try to figure out what they are. <laughs> but uh, so that was that was. It's wonderful to be associated with it. I'm I'm delighted that guys who saw it when they were were little guys like yourself, now a grown man, enjoyed it the way you do. These these comments come back to me, and I I'm very happy that that I had something to do with it. And I feel what I did had to do with it was was important because uh you know i've worked on movies where i was handed maybe not a perfect but nevertheless a, a sketch from someone in the design area on the film and i was told not asked i was told make it look like this and i tried to make it better but you see what i'm saying in other words it's not yeah. a little thing to be the guy that comes up with that and i was and to tom's credit he got a practical copy of it up and running and they finished the movie but I am the co-creator of Sloth, along with Steven Spielberg, I have to say it. That's something very cool to say. You see, it is, and I'm proud of it. <laughs> One of my um, early memories of watching TV was my dad let me stay up late in the UK um, in the week on a school night, and I'd be allowed to stay up and watch X-Files. Now, the monster and the kind of creature design is one of the reasons I fell in love with practical effects what was it like working on this production? Because that, for me, is one of the biggest TV shows of all time. It's up there with Twin Peaks. It's one of the most watched, and people are still obsessed with it now. It must have been amazing to be part of such a big production. Yeah, it was It was uh, always fun to work on The X-Files. Uh, my personal uh, perspective, uh, of course, partakes of the simple practical elements that on some shows you would go and they would be disorganized or they would give you fairly substandard uh, appliances sometimes. That was, the, the, the Star Trek TV shows were notorious for that. But, uh, but, but, in this, but in this instance, you had the very best quality prosthetics, some really good thinking behind it. A wonderful guy uh, who was in charge of the set, uh, whose name will, will pop up in a second. That's, that's the penalty for being 66 now. <laughs> Names are slow coming sometimes. Uh, and also the lab, uh, an outfit called Optic Nerve, uh, whose uh, whose owner sadly is is gone with. He died too young, uh, but uh, they had a wonderful guy there. This is the first name that's finally bubbling out of my brain. A great guy there named John Wheaton, who was a designer who has since gone over and worked at K and B. And so a lot of the concepts came from John, and he also did a lot of the sculpture. Anyway, that was all first rate. So although I worked uh, sporadically on the show. It's still a legitimate one of my credits, and I was fortunate to work on a particular episode or series of episodes that uh, actually won an Emmy for the makeup, having to do with a lot of people who I'm not certain what the plot was, but both the eyes and the nose and even the, uh, uh, the eyes, nose, and mouth were all, I, I think, either sewn shut or sealed shut somehow. Very difficult makeups to wear. And uh, I worked on the initial episode where only one person wore it. I was asked to apply it, and uh, they liked the way it worked out. So I uh, was brought back for an expansion where we worked at a remarkable uh, facility, which is real, and I guess it's still there, way down in uh, a lower part of Southern California, which was used as a – how could I say it was used as a container for dirigibles, military dirigibles – and it was like walking into an enormous half tube that was stories tall, but, you know, 
The only means of support were these kind of hoop-like, gigantic structures. So it was mind-blowing just to stand in there. That was where they shot all the material with all the people in these makeups. And that was the one that was brought up and won the Emmy that year. So uh, well, we all got one, which was nice. Uh, but it was a very, uh, a very well-produced show, as you say. And the interesting thing was you really never knew what these two investigators were going to run up against. And I later, by the way, worked on the movie version, the first one, Fight yeah. the Future. So, uh, you know, that's my, uh, that's my particular look in at the X-Files. I was fortunate in those years that I had gotten myself enough established to where I was a safe hire. In other words, I would think that on the other end of, the, uh, other end of that proposition, they thought, well, we'll get Reardon and he, you know, we'll, he, won't, he won't embarrass us, he won't hurt us. And so I was happy to work on uh, a lot of the famous television shows of the uh, 90s, some of the 80s. And, you know, I mean, I was able to play up both sides of the street, movie and TV. And it was, it was good, too, just to have the employment. So, uh, yeah, I was, uh, you know, happy to work on X-Files, and it was a good experience. As I'm sitting here now talking to you, am I correct in thinking that you're a four-time Emmy Award winner? I am four-time, yeah. I, I was fortunate to uh, get three of the prime times, and I have one called The Daytime, which uh, was for a cute little show done out of New York, where they did a they did a send up of a character that actually originated in Great Britain called Max Head Headroom, and uh, this little educational thing, uh, educational entertainment show for children, sort of walking in the footsteps of uh, Sesame Street, if you're familiar with that, uh, though it was American uh, tea daytime show for children. This one was called uh, uh, Gosh dang, what was it? Something about math. But anyway, they would sometimes cut. To, in essence, a Max Headroom on television, except they called theirs Facts Headful. And I worked with a wonderful actor I've worked with before named Larry Cedar. Larry played the uh, creature on the wing in Twilight Zone, the movie, and he was in Dreamscape because I got him a job in that to do with the Snake Man. And they underused him in that terribly. But anyway, he was great, great. Uh, he's great from the neck up as an actor, but he's great from the neck down, too, because he's also a dancer and he has tremendous ability to act through makeup like doug jones who's finally getting credit you know with the face of shape of water who i've worked with you know yeah real actors but they tend to get a hell of a lot of assignments or did initially you know which exploited their ability to work through a costume which not everybody can do at all and uh i thought that uh, uh larry was great in that little show and so animated so funny uh, and that was, by the way, the, th the, the opportunity I had to do what I wanted to do with Sloth, and it worked like a charm. And I wanted to, I wanted to die because I thought, oh, my God. You know, I did this basically overnight because it's a little TV thing in New York and had to be put together quickly. But I got exactly what I wanted to do for Sloth. There's no justice, you know. Why couldn't I have had these insights, you know, you know, about, I don't know what it was, eight, ten years earlier. But that's life, right? However, it, it was in essence a one a one piece, in essence a kind of an overhead mask, but designed in such a manner with certain principles uh, so that when it was put on, uh, Larry had complete expression through the face. You, know, you wouldn't really be able to tell whether he had been put together like a jigsaw puzzle, like some prosthetic makeups are, or, or was wearing a mask, which is, of course, irrelevant because... I, basically, people are looking at the character. If they're trying to figure out how the makeup was done, 
then it might not be so interesting a character. <clears throat> Looking back on all of your career, what was the most challenging job that you worked on? Well, there are factors involved, Mark, uh, and uh, a, a, a job can suddenly become much more challenging uh, because you don't have enough time. It can become very challenging when you have a lot of uh, unwanted, uh, constant uh, inter intercession or in and second guessing on the part of, uh, you know, the producer or the director, and which leads me to Dreamscape. I would say that became that because uh, they were incessantly screwing around with things, changing the order in which sequences were going to be shot. Uh, when you have very little time to begin with, you have to rely on them with the information you're given at the beginning because let's say, for example, you're, we're going to do scene A. And so you say, okay, great, because that gives us time to work on you know the characters for scene B because A is first. And then for some God knows what reason, oh, no, we're going to flip that because somebody's <laughs> coming from the East Coast who's one of our investors, and we figure that'll be more impressive. And I said, well, I'm not ready for it. Well, you better be ready for it. That was the, You get it. So that's the kind of thing it was. So suddenly the the B, you know, character, which was only about half built, suddenly has to be raced forward. And the A character, which was coming along nicely and just about ready, uh, has to be stopped, shoved to the side. And when the B thing is, is you see what I mean? It's just you stumble and fall. And this happened over and over and on that show. But it may, but it's not a particularly beloved film, so I don't want to belabor it. However, it did come to mind. Uh, challenging, though, they're all challenging, and certainly Poltergeist, There's, we can go back to one that is popular, was very challenging, and a lot, I, though I've said it before in interviews, uh, one of the elements which survived, because a couple of them did not, that I built for it, uh, the face tearing, that was a last-moment deal. That came about because uh, the initial in the script, when he washed his face in the sink and looked up, he was going to be looking at a, a dead version of himself, which would have been a great shock. And I built it. Someday people will see the pictures. I, I, I took photos of it. It's basically a, uh, dis, you know, a, a decomposing version of that actor. And it would have been a, yeah, you know, a big yell. But I was, I, we were working along on that. And the guy I was working with, Mike McCracken, his name was. Mike's gone now, but a terribly talented guy. And he just kind of laughingly mused because we were going to be filming the steak thing, which I did entirely. Mike didn't entirely work on that and he said yeah it was kind of it would be kind of funny if what's going to happen to this steak is what happens to the guy when he looks in the mirror and i said oh you mean like just basically fall apart rot in front of our eyes oh my god yeah geez i thought that's much more original and ultimately more disturbing than just a dead guy and i and i thought you know what i'm going to do mike i'm going to call him i'm going to call him and ask him about it i'm going to see if they'll go for that and he says, well, okay, because, you know, we had deadlines up the wing, yin-yang. But I called him, and I got Kathy Kennedy on the line, who was an assistant producer to Stephen. And I mentioned the thing to her, and she, she actually laughed. She giggled. She says, oh, that's horrible. But, like, that's good. And she says, I'm going to tell him, and I'll get back to you. And I hung up, and I said, I'll be damned. She's going to tell Spielberg. So we went back to work. Phone rings. Whenever I pick it up, she's on the line again. She says, he loves it. She said the only thing he said was it has to be as realistic as, and it was his benchmark back. Remember, this was 1981. It has to be realistic like Alien. Oh. I said, and I said, well, and that's a great compliment to you guys because, I mean, made in Britain and, and a benchmark. Yeah. You know? So I said, I said, I'll try. <laughs> you know, I, I said, I said, 
said, well, Mike, we really put our foot in it now. I said, not only is he going for it, now that we have no time to do it, but he wants it to look as good as Alien, so great. But we, you know, we pulled it off. The thing that disappointed me about it was the concept was the guy would look in the mirror and his face would begin to fall apart. But that was something I try as I may, praying for inspiration, trying different approaches and materials. I couldn't get anything, A, that was sufficiently animatable to give some human expression before it would then fall completely apart, plus which I couldn't get it to fall apart. So I, I had to finally face defeat on that level and say, you know, Mike, you know, speaking to my coworker, I said, I'm afraid he's going to have to tear it apart himself. <laughs> and that was not <laughs> the idea. But I think that I think that element is so appalling to people that see it for the first time. It's almost as though he's lost his mind. Yeah. And uh, so I do remember going to the cast and crew screening. And the fun there is that. And you may not know this, but it's quite true. Mostly these sorts of scenes with uh, on on the floor effects, particularly if they don't involve the leading the leading actors, they're often shot in little splinter units, little second unit things. And this was the case. We were all by ourselves on a portion of a soundstage. There was a a little uh, splinter crew, a cameraman. Uh, uh, Toby did come over to to have some input into it, but there was very little. You know, very little of the crew there. So the point, my, what's my point? My point is really that when we went to the cast and crew screening, nobody knew this was going to happen. You see what I'm saying? That's awesome. They just, didn't, they just didn't know. They weren't aware. So I would say a good three quarters of that house, even though they worked in the movie, did not know this guy was going to do this to himself. And you never heard such commotion. It was great. I was so tickled to death. People were shrieking, and particularly the ladies in the house. And I brought my girlfriend, and she about about tore my hand off holding on to it. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> and you know what? Later, about a year later, when I was working on the Twilight Zone movie, uh, Frank Marshall told me that he had heard that uh, people were coming to see Poltergeist to see the face scene. And uh, I was very complimented. Of course, I didn't get any money <laughs> kicked back for it, but, you know, I was very pleased. That's what you want to hear. I want to end today's interview on a big positive, on a big high. So... I just asked about your most challenging, but what's your highlight of your whole career? What's the one moment that you just wish you could live forever? Wow, that's a hard one. I, I've often said this is often disappointing to people, but I was so fortunate uh, for, a, for a long time that I have to roll them all together. Uh, I, it was more than I could have ever hoped for. And, uh, you know, I don't compare my career with anyone else's. There were bigger careers by far. I mean, look at Stan Winston. I mean, life-size dinosaurs. Yeah. Look at I, I know who I am and what I want and also what I'm not. But I, for what I experienced, it more than fulfilled what I had hoped for. And uh, I can't pick just one. I would feel guilty for another one I hadn't picked. But I but I, one of the greatest moments is right now when I'm retired and I get to talk with people like you. It's such a wonderful feeling to uh, sense your enthusiasm and the regard and the affection you have for some of these things. And uh, if, if I can expand you to a, a legion, uh, that is just, you know, blows my mind. It's beyond my can. So uh, that's the best I can answer that, Mark. That's my favorite answer from any question I've ever asked in two years of podcasting. So I'm thrilled with that answer. Well, thank you. <laughs> Very happy to have been asked it. <laughs> and, and now that you're retired, do you miss it? Are you happy to now relax and be 
be retired and enjoy freedom and not have the stress or does it still kind of get into your blood do you have days where you just want to go to work and do more yes uh yes and yes yeah. uh there are certainly days where i do miss the uh the excitement of uh, coming up with something i also always always just love the hands-on i was definitely you know clay under my fingernails guy and paint all over my clothes i was never a uh, like a, a ringmaster and quite a few people in the business become that they may not start out that way but it's almost forced on them with i'll put air quotes success but their success uh wasn't necessarily my success my success was the ability to keep doing it and i don't blame anyone for expanding their con- their companies and uh and their income and their opportunities uh but you know the further you get pulled away from the work itself the more you become the guy in the clean shirt and you know uh, who works basically in the office i never ever ever wanted to be bud westmore i wanted to be jack pierce you know the comparison there is between an executive supervisor and a and a determinedly involved creative guy which was jack you know the creator of the wolfman frankenstein the mummy and and uh, all that wonderful stuff back in the day when you had to make it out of kleenex so uh, that was my real goal, and I was fortunate to be able to stick to it. You know, there are powerful forces that want you to uh, basically call in the troops and stack, stand back. And I did. I had some talented people help me. But I never had a crew larger than about three people at max, and usually maybe no more than one, and many, many of them just me. And that's how I liked it. And uh, I've kind of I've talked my way right out of remembering what you asked me, but I hope I answered it halfway <laughs> Oh, yes. Am I happy now? Yes. Yes. There's an enormous component in any film career of stress, exhaustion, 60-hour weeks. You know, after a while, that alone is enough to say, okay, okay, uncle, I I give up. I can't do that anymore. And uh, that, unfortunately, can become quite a motivating factor. So what, what, however I may fantasize about doing another one, uh, sometimes either on my own or my wife, she'll remind me, wait a minute, you know, <laughs> don't you remember this, this, this? And I go, okay, okay. So, uh, you know, I, I was fortunate in my time and uh, I'm kind of basking in just having a quiet life. But it's, it's, it's great to feel as if I've been remembered in some context. And so it's, it's a... Uh, it's a lovely time of life. I just wish I could have done this when I was still young. <laughs> you can't you can't live backwards. Do you have that thing now that when you're sitting with your wife or you're enjoying just a bit of downtime and you're watching a film, can you watch recent films and enjoy them or are you still looking at the makeup and thinking that's not right or can you just switch off? I'm always intrigued. I- Yes, uh, I think the whole nature of movies generally has begun to uh, uh, basically move away from where I was focused for most of my life. Bearing in mind that as a little boy, I was already terribly fond of the early sound films. Well, we would all, any of us, agree that today's movies are a a great deal different than those are. And uh, some of the elements that are missing and will never return again, I have great affection for. I love the old theatrical openings. I love the brief credits and none at the end, even though I was a great beneficiary of credits at the end. But you get the picture. There was something kind of glossy and uh, almost like a Christmas present about a lot of old movies, just the way that were made. And the, the, the beautiful lighting, uh, quasi-realistic, but also almost like portrait gallery. Uh, I could go on and on, but it would probably be uh, of very little interest to contemporary film lovers. 
On the other hand, today's movies uh, can basically indulge themselves in a frankness that old movies weren't permitted because there was a lot of Puritan BS in the in the 20th century where they were held to, frankly, non-existent morals. But, you know, if a guy, you know, committed a murder, he had to die even if he was shooting a bad guy. You know the, 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 the yeah. girl. Uh, you know, if you were married, you had to sleep in another bed from your own wife and these stories. Uh, it was it was uh, a little skewed. So uh, those movies, uh, I love them, and I recognize them for what they are. Today's movies I'm not as familiar with. I sometimes find them a little low on emotion. I just uh, – they, they, I watch them. Sometimes I watch them with great interest. But when they're over, I never carry away from them that sense of elation. And I can't – I can't put my finger on it. I don't feel the – the sense of joy or, or, or sadness or emotion that I used to feel routinely in older movies. Sometimes old movies even that have happy ending, I'm crying by the end of them yeah. because of just so many things that have changed. Music, uh, performers, the way they skillfully put those old films together, the construction of them. Uh, there's nothing like those today, and uh, I really would wish that some young people who are perfectly happy with today's films as they grow older perhaps they should sample older movies because i think they'd be shocked and 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 find that they actually enjoy them not everyone would but some some would be quite gratified i think if they tried it i want to thank you for your time today craig and coming on the podcast is a dream for me you're i i really do mean this when i say this you're i i idolize you and the work you've done in cinema and film is legendary and i know it's hard when i'm saying it to you but you are someone that has made a huge difference in cinema film and history and i'm it's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you well god bless you i mean i I, i'd say i'm speechless but as my wife again i cite the authority in the house she would say that's that'll be the day (laughs) (laughs) thanks so much mark it's been a real pleasure So there it is, and I hope I didn't build it up too much at the start, but I think it's my finest interview yet. What a great guest, amazing stories, so honest, so passionate, so positive, and I wish all my guests were like this, because he was an absolute joy from start to finish, and I can't wait for you guys now to start tweeting and letting him read those comments, or anything you send me via email or Facebook, I'll forward on to him, because he's he's a great guy, and I've I've kept in contact since his interview and I want to share everything with him because he's very passionate and wants to read everything. He loved listening back so it's it's really important that if you've enjoyed this let me know and I'll let Craig know as well. In true kind of Mark and Me fashion now you know how this works at the end. I like to tell you about my website markandme.com because on there there's my Twitter, my Facebook, my Instagram and I read and I reply to every single message I get. So if you like this interview or you don't let me know but I'll make sure I reply. Also, I've got a Patreon page, and I'm going to make sure that there's some really good rewards up there for September. The link's on my markandme.com. All you have to do is sign up, and on there you can go for as little as $1 a month, and there's there's loads of perks. You get stuff like a prize draw, you get to win Funkos, you get to win T-shirts, but also all that money goes straight back into Mark and Me, and that gives me the chance to do stuff like travel the UK. I've got some conventions coming up I want to attend to get some more interviews, and obviously I don't make any money from the podcast, so all the Patreon money goes straight in, and allows me to go and do more and more content, which means more and more interviews for you. 
Again, thank you for everyone that supports me on there, but I do need some more. Only over the last couple of months, I think I shared with everyone on my social media, we had to increase the bandwidth because it was getting so many downloads and that cost me quite a lot of money. So I haven't been able to do rewards for the last couple of months, but we're back on track now and I can't wait to give you all some amazing incentives to sign up. As always, guys, I'll be back in a week's time. I've got so many interviews happening right now. I can't afford to have a two-week break or anything like that. So there will be more interviews coming literally within a few days' time. Thanks, everyone, again for listening today. And I'll speak to you all again in a week's time. Just one.